Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. In Jesus' own words, the idea is this. Look, we've, we've looked a lot about you know, what Paul has written, what John has written, what James has written. We went through the whole book of Hebrews, if you remember that. Whoever wrote Hebrews, I don't know. Somebody wrote it. Um, and we've seen what the apostles are teaching about Jesus. And the question kind of comes up a lot. Oh, it's like, well, 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 what about when Jesus said, and then, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it might happen to be. And so it just kind of got me thinking. That's a dangerous thing, you know, because that doesn't happen too much. Is, well, why don't we just kind of go through Jesus' own words and see what Jesus teaches about this message of the new covenant, about forgiveness of sins, about the grace of God that has been poured out upon mankind that if we just simply believe we're forgiven and we're cleansed and we're a new creation. Another way to look at it is this. We've, we've seen the apostles teach very plainly that Christ now lives in us. We're going to see that again today. But it's one thing to, to know that Christ lives in us But you know, it's a totally different thing to know the Christ who lives in us. Does that make sense? I mean, hopefully this doesn't describe your marriage, but maybe you you know a marriage, you know what I mean by that, Um, where the two people are married, they know they're married, they're not going anywhere, they're married, but they just don't really know each other. And they wake up 30 years later and they're like, you know, who are you? I don't even really know who you are. I know that we're married, but I don't really know you. And so we want to get to, not a good place to elbow your husbands on that, you know, by the way, um, take that somewhere else. But, but the idea is we want to get to know Jesus. The great climax, the great desire of the apostles is that we might know him. Unfortunately, there was a lady just in our fellowship not long ago who said to me as they were deciding to go to a different church, they said, well, it just seems like all we do here is just try to get to know Jesus, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's what we're here to do. And if that's not what you're after, it's not appealing, then it might not be fun. But we want to know him. As Craig was just saying, this isn't, you know, theology that we study. This isn't just doctrine. This is a person, the person of Jesus Christ that actually lives in us. So we're spending some time as a church getting to know him in his own words. Does that make sense? I know I said that a little bit last week, but, but there's a lot of new faces this week, so I just really want to understand we're here to get to know him, and we're going to move through Jesus's ministry, and we're going to talk. We're not going to hit everything. I mean, we're not, we're not going to systematically go through his entire life. We're just going to hit some major, major points that show us, that reveal to us who he is, what he's like, And today we're going to look at the time when Jesus was tempted by the devil. So if you have your Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be there most of it. We'll see some other verses too. 
But temptation, I mean, let's face it. Who of us does not face temptation on a regular, constant basis? Man, I, you know, ever, I remember my mom, I remember as a kid, as soon as I like had, you know, the ability to rebel against my mom and dad. My, I remember this one time my mom said, you better not go out and play those sprinklers because it was too cold. Fall had already come and it was too cold and all the other kids were playing the sprinklers. Well, I wanted to play in the sprinklers and so what did I do? I went and I rebelled. I was tempted to play in the sprinklers and I went and played in the sprinklers and I tried to change clothes before she found me all soaking wet in the garage. She opens the, the door and I still remember those daggers coming out of her eyes with, you know, I'm like eight years old with, you know, like, you know, bare butt naked, you know, trying to change clothes into my, you know, into dry clothes before she came in. And uh, man, she lit me up for that. And she should have because I totally disobeyed. But we all, ever since we were little, we've, we've been tempted to, to do what we know is not right to do. Whether you're in your 60s and 70s, whether you're in your, you know, tens and under still, we all face schools about to start, temptation left and right. And many of us have tried to build these, these, these systems, these, these mechanical solutions for overcoming temptation. If I do this, if I, if I do that, if I en- en- enroll enough you know, support, if I this, if I, then we can overcome temptation. But as you know, as I know, sometimes that helps. But a lot of times it just doesn't. And we end up doing the very same things that we've always done before. So what we're going to do today is instead of giving a bunch of principles, the seven principles of how to overcome temptation, instead of doing that, instead of recycling a bunch of religious thought, what we're going to do today is we're just going to see how Jesus was tempted and what he did in response to it and see how that actually, as we look at him in his own words, actually empowers us to overcome the very things that we might habitually have been doing for years and we don't want to do anymore. So let's start in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I find that kind of weird. I don't understand exactly what's going on here because the the Spirit of God, remember what happened in chapter 3 of Matthew. Jesus was baptized. He goes into the water. He comes out of the water. This is just, just a few verses before. The Spirit of God comes down upon him. We looked at this last week. Heavens open up and the voice of the Father says, this is my Son, beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The very next verse is this verse here. The Spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. It's very odd to me. Why in the world is the devil, lead, the, the Spirit leading Jesus to be tempted by the devil? Maybe we can talk about that in our discussion time. Verse 2, after he, Jesus, had fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, then he, Jesus, became hungry. Now look, you could be an atheist and not believe a single word of the Bible, but this one you'll agree with, right? You do not have to be a Jesus follower in order to believe this verse in the Bible. You hadn't eaten for 40 days and he'd become hungry? Yeah, I mean, we're going to go with that. We're going to believe that. We don't have to, you know, parse that one out. You know, if I go like four hours, I become hungry. 40 days and he's hungry. So here you have Jesus with the Spirit in the desert being tempted 
nonstop by the devil. Now, there's three temptations that are recorded, but it sounds like to me that he's just tempted for 40 days. But there's three temptations that are recorded. We're only going to look at one of them. Because I want to just share a few thoughts, and then I want us to discuss. So here's what happens. The devil, the tempter, verse 3, comes, came, and said to Jesus, this is verse 3, Drew, there it is. And the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, why in the world does Satan start off his questioning in that way? Maybe it's because he was trying to get Jesus to doubt who he truly was. And that's what I always thought. But, you know, if you think about it, ever since Jesus was at least age 13, he was totally convinced of who he was. Do you remember what happened in the temple when Mary and Joseph, they left him there, and they finally find him? Jesus says what? Somebody tell us. Jesus says what? Why why are you worried about me? Don't you know I'm here about my father's business? I mean, Jesus at age 13 knows he's the son of God. So I submit to you that the devil's not trying to get Jesus to doubt who he is. Now, I could be wrong on that, okay? But I'm going to suggest to you that the devil had no idea there was a son. I'm going to suggest, I could be wrong, but the devil had no idea that there was a son. It seems to me that until the father revealed that there was a son at Jesus' baptism, both man and devil and demons were clueless that there was a son. All throughout the Old Testament, there's talk of a Messiah coming. Sure, they knew a Messiah, they knew a Christ was coming, but I don't think they knew that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be God, the Son, in the flesh. At Jesus' baptism, God was revealing a mystery that had been hidden hidden from all of previous generations, but now was being revealed. And the mystery was that there's a son. There's a son, and this son had become a man in order to destroy the grip that, that the devil had on mankind. And it was in the crucifixion of this man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that actually severed the devil's grip on humanity. But what would have happened if Satan knew that Jesus truly was the Son of God? Well, we don't have to ask that question and be confused about it because the Apostle Paul actually tells us what would have happened if the rulers of this age knew that Jesus was actually the Son of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You got it on the screen, Drew? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7 and 8. You there? No? Okay. Well, just believe me. I'll hold this up. You might not be able to read this. Can you read this, Rachel? I don't know. But we speak God's wisdom. This is the Apostle Paul. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. So this mystery, we're proclaiming Christ. We're talking about Christ, this mystery that there was a son. If the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood, if they knew that, the, that Jesus was the Son of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It sounds like to me that, Jesus, that Satan, uh, that, that he, 
that if, he, if Satan was truly aware of who Jesus was, that Satan and all the other rulers of this world would not have crucified the Son of God. So think about the wisdom of God in this. God used the devil himself as a pawn of sorts, a pawn in his great plan to be the actual agent that brought about the crucifixion of the Son of God, the very crucifixion that would result in the devil losing all of his authority over mankind because a man, Jesus, the God-man, would die, but then the God-man, a man, would be what? Raised to life. And in the resurrection of a man, mankind now is able to have victory over what the devil had brought, which is death. First, uh, Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus was a mystery. He was a mystery hidden from generations past, and he is now being revealed to the saints. And the great glory or the great weight of this mystery is that the mystery himself, Jesus Christ, now lives where? In us. Christ in you, your hope of glory. Now, the devils and the demons, they figure it out. I mean, after the resurrection, I mean, they're they're clued in. In Acts chapter 19, you can read it for yourself. But in Acts 19, these, these demons are being cast out of people. And the demons say, hey, we know Jesus. We know Paul. But who are you? These people were trying to cast them out under their own power. So they eventually knew who Jesus was. They, they, they clued in after the resurrection. But I'm submitting to you that the devil and the demons, the rulers of this age, did not know that there was a son. And so the devil is not coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, I'm trying to get you to doubt who you are. I'm submitting to you that the devil himself is trying to figure out who Jesus was because he was a hidden mystery. He, they never knew that there was a son. And they never knew that the son, if they even knew that there was a son, would become a man. The devil had heard a report that there was a son and the son had become a man. And the devil wanted Jesus to show his cards. He wanted Jesus to confirm whether or not he was, in fact, the son of God. Do you see that? If you really are the son of God, because we, we haven't heard this. If you are the son of God, then I want you to take these stones and make them bread. And so the temptation for Jesus was for Jesus to prematurely reveal to Satan who he is. To prematurely reveal who he is. But Jesus knows that there's a plan. And the plan was for Jesus for three to three and a half years from this point to minister, to love, to encourage, to heal, to raise the dead, and then ultimately culminate on a cross, his own death to remove, as we just sung about, the sins of the world. So Jesus sees the temptation. The temptation is to not be patient and for the plan to come to to fruition, but for you, Jesus, to right now, show me your cards. Show me, are you really the son? I know you're hungry, so turn these breads, this stone into bread and tell me, are you really the son of God? And Jesus could have easily done it, right? I mean, Jesus spoke the world into existence. We saw that three weeks ago. He spoke the world. He spoke stones into existence. I mean, he could easily have turned it into bread. That's child's play for Jesus. But Jesus Christ is the personification of long-suffering, of patience. Remember the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience? Who is it? That's a person. That's Jesus And so Jesus is being tempted to short-circuit the plan that has been in place for eternity past and to just reveal to Satan that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Remember how Jesus says at the wedding of Cana, 
when his mom, uh, Mary, says, hey, turn, you know, Jesus, go handle this whole wine shortage thing. Remember what he says to his mom? Woman, why are you involving me in this? For my time has not yet, what? Come. He knew that there was a time scale. He knew that, that his time would come to be revealed in the, in the resurrection of the Son of God. And he wanted to be very careful to not prematurely reveal this. For if the, the rulers of this age had known he was the Christ, he was the Son of God, they would not have crucified him. So he could have easily done it, but he's the personification of patience, and his time had not yet come. And so this is how Jesus responds to this temptation I mean, you got the devil there who had never seen, heard of Jesus. He never knew that there was a son. And the temptation is to short-circuit the cross and just reveal to, to Satan that he is the son. And this is, turn these stones into bread, and this is Jesus' response. Sorry, but I have a gluten allergy. Oh, no, sorry, that's another response. Um, verse 4, he answered him saying, it's written that man shall not live by bread alone. Thank goodness, because I like potatoes and meat. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So much to the devil's disappointment, Jesus doesn't turn the trick for him. He doesn't perform this trick that Satan is hoping for. And so this mystery for Satan continues. In fact, Satan does two more things. He, he asked him two more things. If you really are the son of God, then do this. If you really are, we're not going to look at those this morning. But he continues trying to get Jesus to reveal if he really is the son of God because he's never heard of this thing. But we're going to zero in. We're not going to look at the other two temptations. We're just going to zero in on this in a few minutes we have remaining and open the floor for some discussion because this is so loaded. First of all, Jeus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, and in Deut- Deuteronomy eight, the Lord is recounting all of the various ways that he's been merciful to the children of Israel as they wandered in the desert. And God gave Israel this thing we call manna every day to reveal to them and to us that God himself is the source of life, that the people, the children of Israel, are absolutely dependent upon the Lord providing for their needs. And so Jesus is hungry. The devil knows he's hungry. The, de- the devil really wants to know whether or not Jesus is the son. And so he tempts him to turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, listen, man is not de- man's dependency, look, devil, man's dependency is not on bread alone. There's a whole other sphere. There's a whole other dependency. There's a whole other level that man is truly dependent, and it's dependent upon the, the very words that come from the mouth of God. And Jesus is revealing, I think, something very huge to us this morning. He's saying that there's a greater dependence than food. Man is dependent upon the very voice, the very word, the very spoken words of God himself. Now, we've got to be careful. <clears throat> when we read this, uh, well, go back to the previous verse. When we read this, We hear Jesus saying that here's how you overcome temptation. It's by having this love and this dedication, this commitment to the Word of God. And so each of us, we can look at this having a variety of temptations that come our way and being very sick of the temptations that come our way. And we can hear Jesus say it's the words of God that we have to, you know, eat from. And so it's very easy for us, at least for me, to become so zealous at trying our best to just simply memorize words on a page. 
I remember when I was in high school, and probably you've done this too. When I was in high school, I was so zealous of trying to overcome certain temptations that were in my life that I committed to memorizing as much of the Bible as possible because it's the Word of God that we must, you know, live on that gives us life, that gives us victory, that gives us the ability to overcome. Psalm 119 says that uh, if I, I, I hide your Word in my heart so that I won't sin against God. And so I'm thinking this formula is memorize Scripture, and that equals victory over sin. If I just memorize these words, and so I put a lot of time memorizing, just putting knowledge into my brain so that I could recite verses when people would just ask me, hey, recite all your verses for this week, and I could recite them. But guess what continued? You can say the sin. The sin continued. Why did the sin continue? Because I was taking something that Jesus isn't talking about at all here, in my opinion, and he, I'm taking it and trying to create this, this uh, mechanical formula, a mathematical formula. Memorized Scripture equals victory over sin. Well, when Deuteronomy 8 was written, how much of the Scripture was even around? 66 books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I mean, that's all that was around. So certainly the Lord was not referring to memorizing 66 books of the Bible. Now, is it good to memorize the Scriptures? Of course. I mean, you hear me quote Scriptures. I'm, I, I read it all the time. But this thinking that just this mechanical, you know, memorization, rote memorization is going to now yield or produce victory over sin is it's not at all what Jesus is talking about. So what is he talking about? What does Jesus have in mind? I think that Jesus is showing us that there's a whole other source for life, a source that's greater than bread. I think, he, I think he's telling us that the very source for our life, true life, is the very words that come from the heart of God. Sure, Jesus was human. He's hungry. He needed to eat, but there was something more. Jesus saying that the, the body is created to be dependent upon food to reveal to us that we ourselves are dependent in order to have life on something else, someone else besides bread alone. So Jesus, he gives us an example. He gives us a different formula. He says it's not, it's, it's not just about memorizing a bunch of verses to try to have this now power within you because you memorized a bunch of words, but he's talking about the revelation of a dependency upon a person that now lives actually in us. And here's what I want us to kind of wrap up this morning with this thought. Jesus Christ himself lived in absolute dependence on earth. He lived in dependence upon the Father. And we're going to see some verses real quick that show us that. As Jesus lived in dependency upon the Father in that same exact way, we live in dependency upon Jesus. So Jesus lived in dependency upon the Father. We now live in dependency upon the Son. So we got those bracelets. What would Jesus do? And we're worried about every single situation and scenario. Well, here's what Jesus did. He lived in absolute dependency upon the Father within him to show us how to live. How do we gain victory over sin? How do we walk through this world and sin less and glorify the Lord more? By living in absolute dependency upon the Christ who lives in us. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 5, Jesus says, now this is Jesus. I mean, this is 
Jesus. We, we know Jesus. Jesus says, no, it's not verse 20. We're going to be in verse 19. Yeah. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do what? Nothing. Now, let's just take a time out right there. This is Jesus saying Jesus can do nothing. Well, I thought Jesus was God. Well, yes, he is God, but he's modeling for us something. What is he modeling? The son, the son can do nothing of himself unless he sees the Father doing it. For whatever the Father does, these are the things that the Son does in like manner. So you see this relationship. The Son is modeling for us what life is like. Jesus lived by seeing the Father in him at work. And Jesus does what he sees the Father doing. Look at verse 20. Why would Jesus have such, such confidence in, in the Father? For the Father loves the Son. The, fa- the Son knew how much the Father loved him. And as a result, Jesus knew that if he looked to the Father within him, he would produce, he would do the works of the Father. He trusted the Father. He had confidence in the Father because the Father loves the Son. In verse 30, this is Jesus. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I mean, this sounds like Jesus can't do anything. And he's modeling for us what life for you and me looks like. You and I can do nothing apart from the Son living in us. Just as Jesus on earth could do nothing apart from the Father living in him. Don't take my word for it. Let's keep reading. John 14, here's a couple more examples. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? There's this union, this oneness. Do you not understand that? The words that I speak to you, he says it again. I do not speak in my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. You see that? I mean, Jesus is modeling for us the absolute dependency that he has upon the Father in him. Well, guess what? That's what we do. That's what we do. We live in an absolute dependency upon the Christ, the Son, living in us. Keep reading in that passage in John 14, or excuse me, John 6, John 6, 48. Now, Jesus is really connecting some dots here. He, he's talking about you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Ultimately, who is the Word of God? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became Flesh, you can say it with me, flesh, and made his dwelling in us, with us, Emmanuel. So the word was always with God. Jesus is the word. He is the word. And he says here in verse 48, I am the bread of life. So it's the very life of Jesus when we spiritually see these little things here. What are these called? Air quotes. All right. We don't want to go into like cannibalism. That's not what we're talking about. Let's see spiritually, spiritual things here. When we eat Christ, when we ingest, when we receive him into our being, that's how we get life. It's by receiving the bread of life, Jesus himself. And he's talking to these Pharisees who are all proud of, of their ancestry. They say, well, our father was Abraham. Our father was, you know, you've read this before. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they what? <laughs> They died. Uh, big deal. They died. You, you're so proud of your fathers on earth. 
They died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one who eats of it will not die. And I see him kind of doing this. This is the bread of heaven. Do you see that? I'm the one that you must have. I'm the one that actually sustains your life. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came out of heaven. So just as the Son lives and is nourished and is sustained by the Father, Jesus is connecting the dots here to say, you, you, Angie, you, Doug, you live in an absolute dependency upon Jesus Christ himself who sustains your life. If anyone eats of, again, I see these like, you know, two thumbs, you know. Anyone who thinks of, eats of this bread, I see Jesus saying, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, again, is he talking about, you know, Jeffrey Dahmerism here or something? What's going on? No, no, no. He's talking about this flesh which would hang on a cross and die for the sins of the world, his death so that you might have life. As the 57, our last verse here, as the living father sent me. Okay, what was the condition of their fathers? Remember, dead. You're so proud about your fathers? Well, they're all dead. But the living father sent me. And I live, look at this, because of the Father. So Jesus, he's driving this point. I live because of the Father. My life is dependent upon him. I don't do anything in this world, no miracle, no teaching, no walking on water, all these things that we're going to see over the next several months. In Jesus' own words, I don't do any of it apart from an absolute continual intimate dependency upon the Father. I live because of the Father. Now look at this. He who eats of me, he who receives me, who believes in me, he will also live because of me. So just as Jesus is dependent upon the Father for every single thing he does. Now, Jesus, of all people, he could get by by being independent of the Father, right? I mean, he's God. He could do whatever he wants. But he's modeling for you and me this picture of absolute dependency upon the Father so that we can look to him and his dependency upon the Father and our eyes can open up a little bit and say, wow, in that same way that Jesus lived dependent upon the Father, we now live in absolute 100% dependency upon the Son. So here's our journey marker. Here's our journey marker. If you're new with us, journey marker is just combining these thoughts into a simple, you know, sentence. It's just this. I mean, we've said it all morning long. As Jesus lived in dependency upon the Father, we now live in dependency upon the Son. And so as Jesus is tempted by the devil to short-circuit the plan, I mean, you talk about a mate, Jesus wouldn't have had to, you know, suffer. He wouldn't have had his beard plucked out. He wouldn't have had to get those nails driven through his, his, his hands and his feet. He wouldn't have had the crown of thorns. I mean, he would not have had to go through any of that if he just turned some bread into, some stones into bread. 
But Jesus knowing there's a plan, Jesus living by the very word of the Father, he shows us when we are tempted, and I mean, let's be face it, it comes, it happens this afternoon when we get in the car, there's going to be that temptation to, you know, yell at the kids, you know, to blow up at the wife, whatever it's going to be. When that temptation comes, we have the ability now to say, wait a second, wait a second. As Jesus lived by the Father, so I now live by the Son. And the Son of God now becomes the fuel. His love for us becomes the fuel by which we're able to resist the temptation because we're living by the Son. If you remember when Jacob, go back to Genesis 28, I think. Is that on the screen? I'm not sure. Yeah, Genesis 28. Jacob, he has a dream. He falls asleep. And as he's asleep, he sees a ladder going between heaven and earth. And this ladder, there's angels coming down and ministering, doing all this, this, this work. And he, re, he shows him that, my goodness, the, the presence of the Lord is actually in this place. And he wakes up from it. He, he calls the place Bethel, which means the house of God, the place of God. And he makes this statement. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. I think that's a picture, a shadow, a foretelling of us today that we can every single minute, every single day have a revelation, have an understanding of, oh my God, the Lord is in this place. And the question is, do I know it? Do I realize it? Do I walk through life with a constant awareness that the Lord God himself, Jesus is alive in me, not just because, you know, his place is getting renovated and he needed a place to stay for a little bit, but he's in me to give me life. He's in me so that I can, can, can sustain life from him, that he becomes the source of every single action, every single thing, every single conversation. As the son lived by the father, so now we live by the son. Do you remember what the angel did to Jacob when they wrestled? He touched his hip, remember? And Jacob, for the rest of his days, walked around with a limp, and he had a rod. He had a staff, a cane of sorts, and he couldn't walk on his own. He had to walk by a cane, always depending upon a staff in order to even walk the rest of his days. What a picture. What a picture that you and I, the rest of our days, feeble in our flesh, relying upon Christ himself, our staff, to lean on, to take us where we need to go. So how do we overcome temptation in this world? Well, I, it's going to come, but we're not going to overcome it by simply creating some sort of rote methods of just do this and then this happens, memorize these verses and out pops, you know, victory. I think it comes by us living in absolute dependency upon the Christ who lived in dependency upon the Father. You see that? So as we look through in Jesus' own words, in your own time, in our time here as a church, look at just how dependent Jesus is upon the Father. Because, Jamie, that's your example. That's my example. Chris, it's yours. Jeff, it's our example. It's our model for how we now live in absolute dependency upon Jesus. But the question is, do we even know? 
that the Lord is in this place? Do we even walk around with an awareness that whether I'm driving my car, whether I'm coaching soccer, or whether I'm, you know, at work, whatever I'm doing, that the Lord is in this place? Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.